Pot Stirrer Podcast, where politics, religion, and history collide, and it's not always polite. How does it feel when you discover everything you have been told is a lie? I grew up in a household with a mother who was, and still is, a strong Bible-believing non-denominational Christian, and a father who had a very fascinating spiritual journey, but one constant was a strong belief in God. And I went to Roman Catholic schools throughout my childhood and adolescence. But much of my faith foundation was built in evangelical Christianity. As I mentioned in previous episodes, I first became a Christian, or born again, so to speak, my first year of undergrad at The Ohio State University. Ohio State has had somewhat of a reputation over the years of being a very good school, but a party school geared toward sports, especially football. While I did partake in rooting for the Buckeyes, I even had season tickets one year. I traded away most of the parties and drinking for a relatively ascetic four years. I was involved in campus ministry throughout college, led Bible studies, and towards the end became an officer of my local university chapter. As for Sundays, I went to World Harvest Church, led by famous televangelist Rod Parsley, my first year or so at OSU. Then, for the rest of my time in college, I was part of a local church plant several blocks from campus, a charismatic, non-denominational church rooted in evangelical values in the heart of the Short North District in Columbus. This church is no longer in existence. and set in an old theater building across from Stonewall, Columbus, an LGBT community center named after the famous New York gay bar, the Stonewall Inn. The Stonewall Inn was the scene of a major uprising in 1969 that was a pivotal moment in the history of the gay rights movement. The Short North area was a very progressive area in Columbus, and the church, which was pretty conservative, aimed to be a light in the perceived darkness. One of the messages hammered home both in campus ministry and at church was this, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. 1 John 2, 15-17 Be in the world, but not of the world. That was the takeaway. But the reality is that American evangelicalism, as a movement, is just as much of the world as those it sees as being in darkness. And in the age of Trump, this fact is finally being laid bare. I am your host, Jay Poole. There have been too many controversies and scandals during the Trump presidency to keep track of. Even currently, there's so much. The House Republicans prematurely coming out with a report stating there was no collusion between Donald Trump's campaign and Russia without actually talking to many of the principals involved in the campaign. Special Counsel Robert Mueller's investigation is continuing to uncover more information and issue more indictments. Trump's repeated engagement with North Korean dictator Kim Jong-un providing the Kim regime more legitimacy than any other American president has ever provided them. Trump being soft on Russian leader Vladimir Putin as Russia attacks American soldiers and our allies abroad, 
while claiming publicly he's getting one over on Canada. Canada! Really? More upheaval within the Trump administration. There's politician doublespeak, then there's Trump! A president whose words even his supporters state we cannot take seriously. And that's just scratching the surface. But what I want to talk about today is not so much about Trump, per se, but about a group that is most in support of him. White Evangelical Christians. As the Trump regime descends into chaos along with our country, a number of articles and op-eds have been written on white evangelical Christians recently. I have linked to both the piece in The Atlantic and the one that Forbes printed then pulled on our Facebook page. The Forbes piece is probably the most provocative one, but really drives the point home. That's probably the real reason why it got pulled. It hurt the wrong people's feelings. This coverage of white evangelical Christians, and a lot of it not being favorable, has prompted this type of reaction. Why are they picking on us? This shows we're being persecuted. And hashtag not all evangelicals. If you've listened to previous episodes or taken a look at the catalog of episodes on our website, potsterpodcast.com, with a number of them tagged evangelical, you know that this is definitely not my first time talking about white evangelicals. I was once a part of predominantly Caucasian evangelical churches, with mostly conservative white male leaders as a believer. I'm still a believer, and I'm still a Christian who holds some doctrinal views that are rooted in evangelicalism. I studied the white evangelical tradition as an academic and researched their theological, social, and political attitudes for years, lived it and breathed it, and got the t-shirt. I'm not writing the recent wave of coverage on white evangelicals. This is in my wheelhouse, and a lot of what's being written about now, I wrote about before it became popular. And that's why, unlike so many others, I was not surprised that over 80% of evangelical voters came out in support of Donald Trump in 2016. I already knew that it's not just about religious faith, it's also about race. When I say it's about race, let me be clear, I'm not stating that white evangelicals are all or even mostly racist. What I am saying is that each of us approach life and how we relate to other people based on worldview. Of course, part of that is due to individual circumstances. Everyone has unique individual experiences. But we don't live lives in a vacuum. We are influenced by who raises us and the experiences they have, where we live, where we go to school, where we worship, where we spend our free time, where we work how others perceive and treat us, what society's narrative is about us, so on and so forth. And it is naive to think that the history of the United States, particularly the pervasive history of race in this country, has no effect on the present. There are people still very much alive who have lived through racial segregation and legalized racial discrimination, either as the disadvantaged or as beneficiaries. And the inequalities of the past still affect life today and how people experience life. And it's not just economics, though that is often a part of it. But race operates as a factor beyond who's rich and who's poor. 
It is very easy to see life for yourself and others as individual choice when you are not viewed as a monolithic group. It is easy to think that making better decisions will lead to better outcomes when you are less likely to suffer if you don't make better decisions all the time. It is easy to believe assimilation will make you successful when not everyone has the same opportunity to do so. The beauty of race in the United States is that if you are in the minority, you have to operate in two or more spheres. But if you are in the majority, you are only required to operate in one. When you have limited experience, it hinders the ability to develop self-awareness. There was recently an article in the New York Times about how the push in evangelical churches towards racial reconciliation the past couple of decades has essentially deteriorated with the 2016 election of Donald Trump. I'll link to it in the show liner. The article gave the real-life example of a predominantly white megachurch in Dallas where the pastor had been aiming for racial reconciliation for quite some time, attracting some black families to the church, but experienced an exodus of black congregants when he and other church leaders coyly supported Donald Trump from the pulpit. Even though the pastor later said it was important that white pastors deal with racism scripturally and acknowledge the lack of repentance for America's history of racism, he could not recognize how his support for Donald Trump and all of the ways Trump's racist rhetoric and actions violate core biblical principles was a factor in the division occurring in his own church. Potstar Podcast will be back after this. Did you know for today's episode, marriage is a major commitment. You are agreeing to share life with another person physically, relationally, socially, and financially. It's a commitment that is often quite easy to get into, but much harder to undo if you change your mind or the relationship doesn't work out. Speaking of marriage being easy to enter into, did you know that in half of U.S. states, under certain conditions, minors of any age can get married? Yes, this is America. In general, all states require children 17 and younger to obtain permission from a parent or judge before tying the knot. And nine states allow age requirements to be lifted for pregnant minors. Some conservative interest groups and lawmakers oppose efforts to change child marriage laws in these states because they believe parents should be able to make the decision as to whether or not their child will marry as a minor, and allowing government to make that decision is overreach. But opponents of child marriage contend that child marriage allows for young people, especially girls, to be sexually exploited, yet it lets perpetrators off the hook. Minor children are either groomed by their perpetrators to willingly accept a bond they are too young or too immature to enter into, or in some cases, the parents coerce them to marry their abusers. The pregnancy exception in particular has been used by child predators to escape prosecution. In addition, some parents may coerce a pregnant minor to marry the child's father to legitimize the baby or to avoid family shame. The U.S. State Department released a report in 2016 that, in part, discussed the dangers of child marriage, particularly on young girls, as this tends to affect girls more than boys. Quote, Ultimately, 
Child Early Enforced Marriage, or CEFM, arises from and often perpetrates gender inequality. It is a human rights abuse that contributes to economic hardship and leads to underinvestment in girls' educational and healthcare needs. CEFM undermines economic productivity, threatens sustainable growth and development, and fosters conditions that enable or exacerbate violence and insecurity, including domestic violence. It produces devastating repercussions for a girl's life, effectively ending her childhood. Early marriage forces a girl into adulthood and motherhood before she is physically and mentally mature and before she completes her education, limiting her future options, depriving her of the chance to reach her full potential, and preventing her from contributing fully to her family and community." Unquote. With the hashtag MeToo and hashtag Time's Up movements, there's been a push in some states to make child marriage illegal. NPR reported on Kentucky's quest to cut down on child marriage in their state. Kentucky is one of those 25 states where children can marry at any age under certain conditions and one of the nine states with the pregnancy exception. Kentucky Bill SB 48 would raise the minimum age of marriage to 17, require the consent of a family court or district court judge, and remove the pregnancy exemption. SB 48 has been passed by the Kentucky legislature as of March 16th and is headed to Governor Matt Bevin's desk to sign. A similar bill is also at the governor's signature stage in Florida. It is beyond time to do right by the children in America. Now, back to Potstirer Podcast. There's a podcast I came across while researching called Truth's Table. It's a podcast hosted by three Black Christian women who discuss politics, race, gender, and other issues. It's a wonderful podcast and definitely worth listening to. There's an episode they released back in September where they interviewed Christian hip-hop artist Lecrae. Their discussion of Lecrae's divorce from white evangelicalism truly resonated with me. The impetus for the divorce was that the pain of injustice prompted by the killing of Michael Brown by police in Ferguson, Missouri, revealed that many of Lecrae's white evangelical fans and supporters only accepted him on their terms. When I was an undergrad, I was blessed enough to have two very close friends who were black Christian women, and they were also African-American and African studies majors. So with them, I never felt like I needed to leave behind any part of who I was or where I came from to be a proper Christian. Now, I did not feel accepted in all Christian circles while in college. Some church and ministry circles emphasized sins such as homosexuality but touched on the sins of racism and contempt for the poor and oppressed with kid gloves because somehow how we viewed and treated other people was not as important as sexual purity. And I felt exhausted in campus ministry with efforts of learning about other people's lives and cultures too often only going in one direction. But I credit my close friends as a huge part in helping me stay strong in my Christian faith while my faith was still in its infancy. My parents joined a predominantly white evangelical church on the edge of Detroit near their home some years before my dad died. 
The summer after I graduated from OSU, I spent time at home and started attending a young adult ministry there. The people there were great and the messages were sound and relatable. The interesting thing is, I found out later about the church that the reason it was predominantly white was not because it had always been so, like many other churches. It was at one point a very integrated church, an anomaly in one of the most racially segregated metros in America. But this was prior to my parents attending this church. The previous pastor had been driven out of the church for spending time preaching on the topic of racism and white supremacy. And when he started his own church, many of the black congregants went with him. Grad school was a bit different than undergrad. Part of it was no longer being involved in campus ministry, though I did attend a Bible study for a while geared towards grad students. But a big part of it was exchanging the life of being in a largely conservative bubble in a liberal town to being in a conservative town full of white evangelical Protestants and conservative Catholics. The proverb, if you don't work, you don't eat, was exalted over Jesus' call to care for the least of these. A Caucasian evangelical friend once remarked while we were in her diverse neighborhood that black men shouldn't wear white t-shirts because it makes them look like gang members. Not comprehending the fact that when I saw those same black men, I saw my father, my brothers, my uncles, my cousins, not thugs. Martial arts, which my dad practiced for a lifetime, was considered demonic because of ties with Eastern religion. But we needed to say Merry Christmas instead of Happy Holidays, not acknowledging that Christmas itself is based on pagan traditions. An abortion was the benchmark for being able to tell if a politician was moral, not their commitment to loving their neighbor as themselves. The Bible says that Christians should be known by our love, but much of my experience is that in the white evangelical and conservative Christian community, the love for the other was too often lacking. My experiences in the evangelical community drove me to study the differences between white evangelicals and black Protestants who tend to have similar religious beliefs, but vote very differently. But over time, both my studies and my experiences also led me to leaving American evangelicalism. I would describe it as a drifting apart, an estrangement, rather than Lecrae's divorce, but it was a separation nevertheless. There are a lot of things I embraced about evangelicalism and still do. The focus on a personal relationship with God, as well as expressive praise and worship. The idea that the pastor, according to the book of James, as well as church elders, has an extra burden of accountability and are not infallible mouthpieces for God himself. And what I embrace the most is the idea that the Bible is the inerrant word of God and God through his word is the final arbiter, not fallible man. These are not all unique to evangelicalism and can also be found in other Christian traditions, but these were tenets that, along with basic Christian doctrine, are at the foundation of my faith. I will also say that I met some great people in evangelicalism who taught me a lot about apologetics or the practice of defending the faith using discourse, philosophy, ethics, accountability, and just life from other perspectives. And evangelical Christians have been great at mentoring and advising me and have been there for me in my time of need. For example, at my, for example, 
After my dad's sudden passing, my women's Bible study was very supportive and comforting. But many white evangelicals are wrong about being persecuted in America. It's not persecution when you stray away from God's word for the sake of political power. American evangelicalism as a whole has not lived up to its promise. In practice, churchgoers have essentially been taught to ignore the Bible and listen to the pastor. And the pastor listens to politicians and political strategists. Congregants are taught that their political voice should be used solely to defend the unborn, which has no basis in the Bible, while condemning the poor, the oppressed, the stranger, the orphaned as degenerates or even enemies, and figuring God will take care of them, which is the opposite of what Jesus taught. Now, I know some on the left may disagree with me, but I believe American evangelicalism can be redeemed, which is why I have no desire to go gentle into that good night. And I know God wants us all brought to him regardless of race, color, nationality, gender, political ideology, sexual orientation, or any other point of difference. But it can no longer be on their terms because their terms both began and continue to perpetuate the division. Their terms have poisoned the well. Ignoring the problem doesn't breed unity. It exacerbates the wound. Ignoring the problem leaves us out of touch and leads to bad witness and worse fruit. We start fixing the problem and reconciling American evangelicalism as a movement back to God by telling and being willing to hear the truth. Check out our website today, potswearpodcast.com, for previous episodes, special presentations, announcements, merch, and all things Potstirer Podcast. You can find our show on iTunes, Google Play, and most other podcatchers. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe, give us five stars, leave a review, share, and tell your friends. Thank you for listening and supporting Potstirer Podcast. I'm Jay Poole. Let's fight for America's future because freedom is not free.